Insights to Live By, the podcast, discovering new pearls of wisdom to enrich our lives. How can we shift from just talking about people's needs to delivering effective practices that address them? Hello and welcome to Insights to Live By. I am your host, Matt Zinman. So great to have you back here. We are in to new shows in 2023, and uh, I was on a little bit of a sabbatical. I have to admit, I enjoyed myself and uh, coming back fresh uh, and back to our bi-weekly recordings and have such a special guest here today, uh, months in the planning uh, here with us is the director of global health and performance for a little known company called Google, uh, among other things. Uh, Newton Chang, welcome to the show. Great to see you. Matt, pleasure to be here. Very excited to have this conversation. Of course. Now, I know, major caveat, corporate caveat, you are here as Newton Chang, not as a Google spokesperson. So that's correct. Okay. Yes. So you can the, rip now. You can just, are... you can just riff all you want. And, uh, yes. <laughs> the, the opinions I express are my own and I'm, I will of course be mindful of and respectful towards my employer and of course my family and who I want to show up in as in the world. Of course, I'd expect nothing less. And you're much more than your, uh, title and role in at Google. You're 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 an industry spokesperson. You're a leader uh, in and around corporate wellness, among other things. And uh, you know you walk the talk in terms of your own well-being, uh, if I may add, and just uh, just give you some props here, Newton. Uh, you are a husband and father to two amazing daughters uh, via adoption. You have you have a f- uh, a five-year-old, right? And, and, a, and a newborn. Yes. Wow. Yes. It's a, a fun, uh, wild time right now. I mean, like, you know, let's get right to the, to the heart of it. You know, family is where the heart is. And, you know, with little kids like that, and I, I know that you're, we had a little pre conversation, you're experiencing dance recitals coupled with diaper changes, essentially. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Yes. This morning was, well, this morning started really at about 4am when, my uh, five-year-old woke me up because she had a nightmare uh-huh. and then I put her back to bed and then 5.30 a.m. the baby um, needed a diaper change and then 7 a.m. the five-year-old came back and it, it was off to the races. So get them ready, feed the cats, make a coffee, uh, breakfast, all the things. And, and so many, it, it, you know, what I'm, what I'm describing, it's pretty much just status quo for so many parents. Oh, for sure. Right. It's just part of the, part of all of what we're going to talk about in the context. We're not just looking at it from, you know, the corporate perspective. And on a personal note, you are, I'm so impressed with this. You are a world champion power lifter. That's correct. Yes. <laughs> I, it's a sport I picked up uh, relatively late in life compared to some other athletes. So I started in my early thirties. And by the time I hit 40, I was at a world competitive level for the master's division. 
And now as I continue to grow, I'm starting to creep up on the open division, which is the all ages group. So currently I am in the top 10 for all ages for my weight class in the U.S. And uh, I hope to get closer and closer to number one. That's tremendous. I, you know, I read something somewhere where you have a goal someday to break the world deadlift record. Is that still, you still have that in your sights? Yes, I do. So I've, I've broken uh, at least one world deadlift record. Wow. I have my sights on one with a more competitive federation. And beyond that, uh, we'll, we'll see how far I can take this. So once I break those records, there's bigger ones. So I'm going to keep going. I'm just converting to pounds. I'm curious, what is the world deadlift record? How, how much weight are we talking about? So my master's world deadlift record is 545 pounds. My best deadlift in competition, which was not at a world level competition. So you can only set world records at world level competitions. My best deadlift is 551 pounds. My I'll say ultimate goal, but once I get there, I'll, I'll be compelled to set a bigger goal is to deadlift 600 pounds at a body weight of 132 pounds. That's tremendous. I mean, look, you know, where you're, you're more than your, your corporate role and, and even your, your personal role with your family, you have your passions and, uh, and, and certainly in and around wellness is the right modeling behavior, you know, into, uh, I mean, I, I'm not disclosing your age here, but you're, like you said, I started in my thirties, you're, you're heading in, you're not, you're not stopping. You still have goals that you're looking to hit. And, uh, I got to tell you, I'm inspired. I'm going to have to get a workout in when we're done here. (laughs) I will, I will proudly say I'm 44 years old. And while my recovery is slowing down, um, I make less mistakes. I'm smarter than I was at 34 or 24. So, there's advantages as well as downsides to aging. And I think the advantages so far are outweighing the downsides. And so I'm going to keep going. Awesome. Let's see if I can be even better at 54. I, I'm, I have no doubt in, in getting to know you, Newton, that uh, you're being modest and that will be the case. Now, before you are in the profession and, and leadership position you are now in and around wellness, you started out in, in engineering. And, and my understanding is, is that you had you know, something happen that led you to just turn the, uh, you know, f- from the education in the early years of your professional experience to get into what you're doing now. Tell me about that. Yes, that's, that's correct. So I started my career as an electrical engineer. Uh, I graduated from the University of Illinois with a Bachelor's of Science in Electrical Engineering. And honestly, the reason I chose that career path is one, my parents really nudged us towards a more narrow set of fields. Um, A lot of Asian American families, you'll hear them say, hey, my professional choices growing up, they were doctor, lawyer, engineer. Same for me. Uh, My parents are both doctors. They didn't push lawyer, but they did push engineer. And so I went with engineer because both my older sisters, who I look up to, they both chose engineer. And that's about as much critical thinking as I put into my life plan at, you know, at age of 17, 18, trying to choose a major. It's more than most, and, Newton. <laughs> <laughs> yes. In retrospect, at the time, I thought I was winging it. But uh, now that I'm a little older, I can see, oh, okay, everyone's winging it. And we're all doing the best with what we have. For sure. And so I uh, worked in engineering for about six years, and I had the privilege of working on the PlayStation 3 when that was in development. 
And so you, you got to see a really major product, like what does it take to bring that to life? And it's just incredibly complex. And I got to work with some of the world's smartest people. And what I found was it just wasn't for me. Like the style of work, the attention to detail and, and the passion for just the foundational science to build something like that, I, I didn't have that. And so I remember walking out of a meeting this was about 2004 and I had just finished design of a circuit board and I'd gotten feedback that some things needed to be addressed with the design. And that meant I would have to work through the holidays. And I thought to myself, I, I was really dejected. And so I'm walking down the hallway and no one's around. So I'm kind of just in my own head. And I, I don't know why this prompt pops in my head, but I thought, what would I do right now if my parents didn't care? And the only thing that popped into my head was I'm going to go buy an expensive bottle of vodka and <laughs> just get drunk on the couch tonight while watching American Idol. It's a start. Sure. And, and that's, that's what I did, okay. but it was also a wake up call of, okay, this isn't working. And the best you could come up with was vodka and American Idol. That's a problem. And so at that time, I always knew that I had this deep interest in health and fitness. I just didn't see it as a career option, but people were always asking me to train them. And I would tell them no, because I wasn't a trained professional. So, but that was enough of a motivator to start asking, okay, this is my life. I get to choose what I do with it. What if I explored that path? And that's what set me into first the health and fitness industry and eventually the corporate or worksite wellness uh, field. And then eventually brought me to Google. That's great. I mean, look, follow your passion. And uh, as much as you talk about uh, American Idol and, and Vodka, it's a transition point there that you can speak to for sure. Um, now, you have been at Google for a number of years ever since. And you are overseeing, uh, you know, not a small job. Um, is it right to say it's over 300,000 employees? How many are there? Uh, it is more in the mid hundred thousand range. Oh, it was a hundred thousand. Oh, okay. Uh, about, uh, I don't have the exact stat available to me, but let's say on the order of 150,000. Okay. That's fair. In our, in our larger ecosystem, there's additionally temps vendors and contractors, uh, who also many of them work on site. Right. And so they, they're kind of like part of the broader Google community. Got it. Got it. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. I looked on LinkedIn and I saw that number. Uh, I could have gone another way to, to research it, but I was like, wow, I mean, that's, obviously one of the largest companies on the planet and you're responsible for supporting the wellness of many, many people just from a programming standpoint uh, and, and knowing how progressive that Google is. Uh, I'd love to hear what are some of the marquee offerings and, and things that you have in place, uh, especially now with the needs in uh, and for people individually uh, for, for Googlers. Yeah, so I think the the responsibilities for supporting the health and well-being of Google employees it's it's split beyond or between several teams, and so we have our partners in the benefits department, we have uh, our partners in people development where they have learning development programs, many of which are uh, related to your health and well-being, and then you have a team like mine, which is the health and performance team, which sits under the larger real estate and workplace services umbrella. And I think our very existence and the willingness to invest in this team is a, a signal of the 
the investment Google is making in the health and well-being of our employees and how progressive they are in their thinking. So my program, while we work closely with, with teams like Benefits, we are our own program. And we think about how do we support the physical, mental, social, and spiritual health of our Google community. And so in the most basic level, we make sure that there are accessible amenities around health and well-being available to almost all Google employees. And these look like things like staffed fitness centers, group exercise and dance studios, uh, sports programs, health promotion and incentive programs. We also have a global scale massage program, as well as a global scale meditation community. Now within there, I think some of the more progressive things that we're looking at is there's a clear there are clear signs that both within our programs and then broader industry research that our programs are stickiest when there's strong social connections built within those. So we have taken a lot of the research of a, a thinker named Charles Vogel, who's he's the author of two books that we refer to heavily, The Art of Community and Building Brand Communities. And he really points out what are the key principles to building strong community and how would you actually scale that across a community, like a, a larger community like Google? And so we are making investments right now to reposition a lot of our staff that would normally just be, not just, but more normally be more focused on delivering things like fitness classes to think about, hey, there's already leaders inside of Google who are bringing people together around activities like powerlifting or like yoga or meditation. And how would we instead think about our job is to empower those leaders to nurture their communities, to reach more people. And that's how we're all gonna come together and we're gonna address things like social health and belonging. Um, so that, that's one of the more, uh, I think, progressive efforts we have in our programs that I'm really excited about. Yeah, let me, let, me, let me just pause you there for the moment because you know we're going to cover and continue to cover a lot of ground, but I wanna emphasize what it is that you just described. Uh, you know, we set the show up talking about doing more than just delivering surface value programming to really get down into the weeds in terms of what people really need and, and delivering the effective practices that address them. And this social learning, this community um, strategy naturally is not just about delivering wellness programming. It's it's aligning with the company's culture, with driving, especially in uh, you know, a hybrid world, uh, the, the cohesiveness of, right. I, I know you're head, you're shaking your head and I'm kind of answering for you. Um, just, just out of wanting to uh, address that. Uh, but I recognize how essential that is. And it's a great model that I, I think Google, uh, is setting up there uh, and certainly props to, uh, Charles, Charles Vogel, who, who you mentioned, I'll have to check those out. So anything yeah, else I'll along these lines? I'll say, uh, so first I'll talk a little bit more about community and kind of sum up, sure. I think what you just said there, and okay. then I'll mention one other thing. Okay. So on the community piece, we used to think about, we'd look at our programs that were, were had really great engagement and were really sticky. And we'd see there was a strong community within that program. And we'd say, ah, how do we uh, leverage community? So our program is stickier. Now we're pivoting our mindset to say, no connection to the community. That's the desired outcome. So I almost don't care if you find that community, whether it's within yoga, whether it's within a game night, um, whether it's in a, you know, a, a, an arts club, 
what we see that so many people need right now, especially with, before the pandemic, our U.S. Surgeon General was already calling attention to the loneliness epidemic, which is the dramatic rise of loneliness in the U.S. and beyond, and the huge ties between loneliness and poor mental health. So we see a desired outcome is just to help you get connected, to help you build meaningful relationships. And we think we can affect holistic health and well-being just as much, if not more, than with an exercise program by doing that. Yeah, and you know another nuance in what you're describing naturally has a lot to do with utilization. And you know one of the things that, in my observation now, Newton, you're much more on the front line than I am. I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. But as I look across the benefits spectrum, and more so, we're not talking about Google here. We're talking, uh, you know, about less progressive companies that are really just checking boxes when it comes to their wellness offerings. Um, on one hand, maybe they don't even mean to do that. It just is the end result. It doesn't necessarily address the problem because what I see are passive offerings. It might be video libraries or fancy apps or coaching services or even, you know, whatever that might be with the EAP uh, employee assistance programming. It still is left to the individual as much as they may need the support to go get the support for themselves. And when we talk about, as I know you know, we've, we've mentioned this, uh, the, the burnout, you know, beyond the wellness and, uh, or rather uh, loneliness crisis, you know, burnout is, burnout is very much at the forefront. And when we're talking about that, people are already dealing with self-neglect and not having enough hours in the day. How are they going to create the space that they need to even seek that help out, even though it's available? So I want to, I want to connect the dot with what you're describing around the socialization of wellness and community as a, as a driver of utilization uh, so that people actually do take advantage of these offerings. Yeah. The way I, I think about it now versus before I used to, when I came into the field earlier, I would think about, do you have the right solutions in place and do people have access to those and are they using them? And then are they using them in a way that gets you the desired outcomes? And that's still really, really relevant. I think what the pandemic has showed us, it was kind of this natural experiment at a global level was human connectivity. It's kind of like a fundamental need that enables you to do so many other things in terms of handling change and uh, seeking support and um, you know making lifestyle changes as needed. So, Yes, you need the programs. And you know you were talking about companies that it kind of comes across as checking the box. And I try not to frame that in too negative a light, knowing what a lot of those program managers who have to make that happen. Like it's a huge amount of work to earn the sponsorship, right. get the resourcing, and then do the execution to get those in place. But then the next question is, are they actually getting you the outcomes you want? And so I'll point to one organization that I think has been doing an, a fantastic job driving conversation around that, and that's the Health Enhancement Research Organization. And they're responsible for a lot of the early research on the effectiveness of worksite wellness programs. Right. This is and they Hero. Continue to drive those yes, Hero. Yeah, yeah. Great and, and so they continue to drive those conversations. I think what I'm seeing now is like, yes, you need those things in place, but the human connectivity and the culture uh, especially that enables the human connectivity. It's like a substrate that just makes everything work better and is also a key human need. 
So more and more of my, my attention is drawn there to say, how do we get that in place? How do we get that working? Yeah. And, you know, I'm glad that you brought Hero up. I'm familiar with your organization. I've spoken to a few people there. Certainly impressive and and nice to hear you validate that from the the practical side, right? Not a lot of these organizations, the research organizations and things like, well, how do you connect the dots from the data to the actual impact? And uh, that's certainly, uh, you know, very relevant to mention. I have to go back and look at some of the things that, that you're talking about specifically. One of the things I want to bring up here in, in and around the importance of leaders uh, in, in driving this and, uh, and, and your role as a leader. And one of the things I noticed is that in your LinkedIn, you weren't just talking about Google. And, and for the very reason that you're here and, and you do these kinds of interviews and, and you know, just representing, you say, I seek to help employers better support the physical, mental, social, and spiritual health and well-being of their employees, families, and neighbors, and their local communities. Very holistic there. Uh, but the plural is what is really what, uh, what came to mind. Now, look, you have a huge responsibility at Google. You've got two young ones. You've, you're doing, you know, your, your powerlifting passion. And uh, here we are with another passion of yours to have an influence, be a leader beyond Google itself. What's driving you to do that? And, and what are some of the things and ways that you think both yourself and others like you can continue to, to lead in that way? I think I'm, I'm, as I think about what's driving me, you know, I'm, I'm professionally inspire, inspired on, on a few different levels. Working for an employer like Google is amazing. You know, a company with such an ambitious, overarching uh, mission to organize the world's information to make it universally accessible. Um, That's just incredible. And that has provided so much value to people. And so I'm inspired by the opportunity to support the people who drive that mission. I am also inspired by the work of the field in general beyond Google, because Google, the, the division of what is Google and is not Google, like we're talking about a business entity, right? Ultimately, we're still part of one human community. And so anything I do within Google can be anything of value. It, it can be extended beyond Google because Google Google is part of society. So why wouldn't we do whatever we can to also uplift our neighbors in the local community and beyond? So that's where I say like, yes, I work for Google and they will continue to be my priority because they are my employer. But there is no reason why this work can't be done in such a way that it can benefit more. That's one thing. And then two, I would argue there are many scenarios where doing it in a way where we're thinking beyond the walls of Google and how this benefits more of the world, like that's the best way to approach it, especially when we're talking about things like social health, because people don't think of um, their community as only Google. You know, they have their family, they have their neighborhood, they have the local community, and that's what builds them a full life. So we have to think beyond the walls of Google in order to do this successfully. Yeah, I'm so glad. Uh, first of all, I'm, as I asked the question, you know, I'm thinking it through and I'm as I did so, y- your answer was exactly what I was thinking, right? And that Google has a, and sees itself bigger than itself and, and having a social responsibility. And here you are implementing best practices that part of that responsibility is to model uh, and, and make that available at least from a knowledge standpoint, to those who are willing to go there in as progressively as, as you are 
for Googlers, but also recognizing that even as advanced as Google is and uh, all the, the great minds there, that uh, they're still not the be all end all, that, that you're humble as an organization, as an individual enough to recognize, I want to go out and see these best practices. I want to uh, not only be able to model, it's a, it's a two-way flow so that you can bring that back in. So nice of you to mention, uh, you know, building community and, you know, hero and, you know, so that's represented in, in what you're talking about. Um, Newton, another thing that, uh, you know, while we're talking about that at a macro level, I want to get to the micro level with you personally uh, in that and around modeling behavior. And, uh, you know, something that I, I, I read that you are um, you know, uh, comfortable in being public about in taking your own mental health leave. And you, you made note uh, about a couple of things. One is that you didn't want to label it a sabbatical. And another is the uh, importance of the barriers, which you and I share uh, together in uh, trying to create more of a of a, a comfortable normalization of conversation for men who uh, may be less comfortable about it. So um, I, I'd love to hear what your thoughts are about you know how you've been modeling there and and uh, about uh, you know men and mental health. So for some context for your audience, sure. Back in January of 2022. So despite working in the field of health and well-being for over 18 years, despite understanding the intersection of health and well-being and performance from my life as a, you know, a world champion competitive athlete, so this is a really daunting amount of experience. Uh, despite all that, in January 2022, I burned out and I went on mental health leave. During that time, we, we, we could get into the details of what exactly you did during, or I did during that time, but sure. I, I was out for um, close to three months. Just coincidentally, at the end of that three months, we adopted my second daughter. So I ended up on new parent leave right after that. Um, but then coming back from both those leaves and knowing the, not just the stats, but I had tried to be open about my struggles before I went out that really opened up a lot of conversation for other people to say, I'm struggling too. So I came back with one, this awareness that so many were struggling just like me. And then two, this story of my own experience and looking around and saying, Hey, I don't think we're talking about this enough. I committed to say, if you, if I have the opportunity, I'm going to tell my story. And so I was given the chance to come on a podcast, um, kind of like this one, but more squarely pointed at men's mental health. I told my story as vulnerably as I could. And I posted it on Facebook and Instagram, and I got this great positive response from my community. But then I had this kind of nagging voice in my head that was saying like, hey, if you really want to change culture, especially in the workplace, shouldn't you post this on LinkedIn? And that was terrifying to me because I thought, well, if I do that, what will happen to my reputation? Will people think less of me? And if that starts to diminish, like, am I going to think less of myself? Because I knew how much of my identity was still wrapped up in work, you know, whether that's good or bad, it, it just was. But I knew what my mission was. And that was to, you know, uh, my, my team, we say our vision is uh, to create a culture of well-being that inspires people around the world to take care of themselves and each other. And that's my team's vision. That is my vision. And it became pretty clear, like, if that is your vision, you need to 
push through these fears and you need to do what you think is right. And it became clear, yeah, I need to post that on LinkedIn. I posted it on LinkedIn. Before that, I wasn't really active on LinkedIn. So if I did post something, I might get, you know, one to two dozen likes. This got 20x the engagement. Hmm. And so I saw that and thought, oh, well, there's a lot of energy for this conversation. What if I open up a little bit more? So then I posted again and I talked about the hard conversations we're having with within my team about how our systems and the work we do, do and do not support the mental health of the members of our team. And right. there's no easy solutions there, but we got to talk about it. I posted about uh, intersections with my Asian American identity. I posted about how I'm strategically returning from burnout. And each of these had huge engagement. But more importantly, what I saw was the behind the scenes or, or the, the engagement that not everyone could see. It was the direct messages. It was the text messages. It was people grabbing me physically in the hallway when I was back in the office to say, hey, I saw your post. I really appreciate that. I'm suffering too. And so with that, I made this commitment to say, hey, for 12 months, I'm going to tell my story wherever I can. I'm going to keep doing it on LinkedIn. I'm going to do podcasts like this and see what happens. And I had this fear that like this might go for a month and then it'll peter out and I'll, I'll find the next thing to do. Uh, it is only accelerated. So Matt, you, you mentioned like it took us months to get this on the calendar. Like right now I'm booked out in, through pretty much Q1 of 2023 and I'm saying no to speaking engagements right now to maintain my health and well-being, uh, but S setting the boundaries. a massive amount of energy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, would you like me to transition now into the men's mental health side of this? I would. You know, I want to. Um, I want to step back because uh, just for the moment, in that our being a long form podcast, we still have your insights to live by, uh, and uh, and another segment that we do, you know, where we can go here that's going to be most practical for our, our listeners and, and go a little bit deeper. So it's good to acknowledge in men's mental health. And I, I think just normalizing that conversation naturally, you know, both of us are advocates. Um, you know, I, I'm out in public having contended with depression and how I manage that. And I felt it's important to do, but I want to, I want to stay practical uh, in two ways. Um, one is when it comes to the likes of burnout, Yes, there is the one side of it that may be prolonged self-neglect. The other side of it, when we're talking about the world of work, are the things that are not in people's control. And, you know, it's like the tail wagging the dog and how the, the company and its processes and things that are set up. And you mentioned, you know, meeting with your team, what it is that companies can do to strip out the, the, the things that are, that are bogging people down, that are contributing to their burnout, is one question. And the other comes back to leadership. And I'd like to, you know, tie the conversation up, this part of the conversation up there around what leaders need to do uh, because it's all naturally driven by them. So uh, at the ground level, what can, what can companies do to uh, it not be causing people's burnout? So, taking it beyond the individual level of all, all the individual self-care sure. things you could be doing. Right. And now thinking at the collective level, um, two things come to mind. I think the one that is really hard for every company to think through is workload management. 
so we work at, at Google. It's a trillion dollar company that is still growing quite rapidly. And so the amount of work that it takes to make that happen and, and manage the costs of a company of that size, there's just going to be a lot of work and it's going to be intense. So I would say a few things. I think one is proper expectation setting. Like I knew what I was getting into when I joined at Google, sure. it was clearly a rocket ship and I'm continuing to join the ride, but it's an intense ride. So I think that's one thing, setting expectations. Two is in terms of workload management, you, you could say, Hey, I need more resources. There's always going to be a tension there of, yeah, you could always use more resources, especially for a company that's growing like Google. On the other hand, a lot of the time you're just not going to get them. Right. So then the question is, how can you better manage the workload? And a lot of that comes down to just ruthless prioritization. So a lot of people are surprised when they ask like, what are the conversations that you're having about managing mental health in your team? And I'm, I say foundationally it is prioritization, uh, and it is governance of our plans. Like it's nuts and bolts stuff. And so that, that is one thing. And I'm like, you, you can't beat around the bush on that. You have to, you have to do that. And if, um, the workload is still too much, you have to start doing the strategic calculation of like, well, you can keep driving your people, but if Microsoft's research is correct and 50% of us are burned out globally, you're now putting your workforce at risk. So how are you going to manage this? If statistically 50% of your workforce is burned out and some of them may go on leave. Like, so I, I can talk about this from a very human level, or I can talk about this from a strategic planning level sure. and you still have to solve it. So that's one thing. The other thing is, especially in an intense environment, you can start to struggle with issues of toxic culture. The foundation that I'll point to is like, hey, if you need to get to, um, if you need to find a starting point for this, it's psychological safety. So Google did a study on um, successful teams across the company a few years ago. And what they found was the most important thing wasn't having super rock stars on your team it was the sense of psychological safety across the team. And so what I would do is go on Google, search psychological safety. There's a few, a few experts I'll point to. There is first Amy Edmondson from Harvard Business School. She is the queen of psychological safety and a lot of the, the key research there. And nice. she has many, many talks out. And then if you need to get more practical, Google put out a guide a few years ago called Rework. That's R-E-W-O-R-K. So if you Google rework plus psychological safety, we have a guide and an audit that you can do with your team to get you started. That's fantastic. I mean, this is exactly what we want to do is get very highly practical right down to listing sources. We'll also list those among other things in the show notes. Um, is there anything did I, I want to make sure that I cut you off there at all was another thought or you want to uh, kind of wrap up with what leaders need to do here. Cause it doesn't happen without them and, and them empowering managers and so forth. Yeah. I'll, I'll say this is now, this is going to be a mindset shift. And so sure. I hope I can describe this in a way that it, it's going to be to some who don't get it. I'm just going to warn you. It's going to seem impractical to others. I, I, I'm saying this message because it's kind of the hard truth of this is how change happens in complex groups of humans. So we've been talking a lot within um, my team and some of our partner teams 
about the concept of is your effort program led where you have like a central team that creates programs and disperses them out to your organization or is it leader led where change happens via leaders embedded throughout your business or your organization and you empower them to drive change i think you need the combination of the two so what i've been trying to do is one i oversee this team the health and performance team We've been doing the, the program-led change for 14 years, and we're doing that in partnership with our benefits department, people development, and others to continue building those programs. That has to continue. The other side of it is how do you empower the leader-led side of it? And so one of the reasons I'm just going around and, and doing my talks wherever I'm invited, so I've done a number of, of talks like this across Google, is because it sparks conversation at the leader-led level, where people start raising their hand and saying, I believe in what you, the message you just delivered. I want to drive change in my team, in my cohort, or in the organization around me. The way these two, the two things happen is if you can get leaders standing up across the organization, different parts of the organization and different levels, that's where change happens, right. but they need support. And that's where the program led side of it comes in, where I can say, I have vetted programs. I have vetted playbooks, strategies. And I will hand those to you. And so now you have expertise to lean on and you're also part of a bigger movement. Yeah. And I think beyond that, I mean, even, uh, you know, leaders as they are, there's only every, everyone has to report to one ultimately. And so there's the, the, the business case that's really easy to make because everything is so prevalent. And uh, you may know, and I just want to mention, you know, the Deloitte study, right, that came out uh, you know, with workplace intelligence and it's 70% of executives are seriously considering quitting for a job that better supports their well-being. 81% of executives say that their well-being is now more important than advancing at work. And so when you, when you combine the people you have to convince are experiencing this themselves personally uh, is the yeah. point here. Uh, so it's easy to make that case, but then you've got all the business case around productivity, uh, turnover, you know, the retention, presenteeism, absenteeism, you know, on and on, and certainly mental well-being. It, it's so strong, and uh, and it and I think that it it, it gives them the um, uh, what would what would be this um, the safety, their own psychological safety. It gives them the ability to to also model the the behavior because they're supported by all of this data and personal experience is that is that a fair statement that is that is totally fair and then let me let me see if i can do a little bit of a mindset shift around leaders sure. as well as uh further explore how how change happens and how you feel this movement please so um john c maxwell is a thought leader on leadership he's a very prolific leadership author and one of the things he says is that Everyone is a leader because everyone can influence someone. And so when we're talking about activating a movement across your organization, everyone who seeks to influence someone else can be a leader. And so, yes, there's the leaders who have structural authority, but everyone, because your organization, it's not just a pyramid, it's also an interconnected community. Everyone has power of influence in that community. So what you're looking for is, yes, you need structural authority because that gives you your effort sponsorship. You're also looking for the hot pot, uh, hot spots of energy uh, where someone is standing up and they're like, I'm ready to activate. 
and, and you can say, I am going to arm that person to drive change as well. Um, so that's one thing. I think the other thing to consider is, yes, many are burned out. What I see is that in spite of that, many are raising their hands to say, hey, I want to drive change too. Right. And you have to think about like all, all work is not equal. So there's energy givers and energy takers. A lot are standing up to raise their hand to say, yeah, I'm burned out, but I want to contribute to this. And my hypothesis is because contributing to this work gives them a feeling of agency of like, yes, I can make this better for myself, for my teams, I, my teammates I care about and others in this community. Um, and if, if they don't have that opportunity, they're in a place of helplessness. And that is nothing burns you out more than that. Yeah. So well said. And, and, uh, I'm glad we wrapped up there and, and, uh, you know, I was struggling to kind of get the the word before I was going for cover, you know, it gives, it gives them cover to be able to yeah. step forward. And, uh, and we all know in corporate, that's, that's pretty important. So, yeah. um, and, uh, my, my audience is, is typically expecting at this point, uh, a segment that we do called insights about guest name, but I, I decided to forego that for really the substance that we just covered. It's a little bit of a playful segment. Um, I'm going to skip that and go straight to, Newton, your insights to live by. We're talking about life lessons here uh, that can relate to what it is we're talking about or just anything that, uh, that you find you'd like to share. Uh, Newton Chang, what is your first insight to live by? So I'm going to offer you three. Yep. And these roughly map to the journey I went through as I was recovering from burnout and was trying to shift my mindset. The first is a quote from author Madeline LeEngle. And she says, I am every age I've ever been. So reflect on that second. I am every age I've ever been. One of the things that I had to do while I was on burnout was I really had to face how much I was driven by anxiety and not aspiration. So I was saying yes to projects where I didn't have the bandwidth um, out of anxiety or this fear of missing out. And it wasn't just missing out professionally. Like when I really interrogated myself, it was um, a fear of not being accepted. And what I could see is I could start to map those back to various childhood traumas I've had. And so as I was going through this process, what I could see was every Newton that has ever existed is still inside me. You know, the childhood Newton who felt rejected, the teen Newton who felt lost, the 25 year old Newton who just drank that bottle of vodka instead of, you know, going to work on the circuit board. Sure. Like as, as much as I'd like to say, I moved past them, they're all in there and I need to understand them. I need to remember uh, what I picked up, who I became via those experiences because they're all making up who I am today and not being aware of them. They all just kind of create this mishmash of fear and anxiety that was driving me to do certain things to burn out. So that's the first one. I am every age I've ever been. Yeah, I love I love that. I really, and it, you've certainly got me thinking on that. Certainly, uh, uh, you know, I know you're you're introducing a quote, but just a conceptually something I've I've never really considered. So thank you for that. Um, and your second insight to live by, please. So second one, if if you see right behind my head here, there's a poster back here. It says, "Be your own hero." And I think that sums it up. In in it, this is now building on. I am every age I've ever been. As I look at who I am now, where 
yes, child Newton's in there, 20 year old lost Newton's in there. For whatever reason, whether it was aspiration, anxiety, coping mechanisms, I built myself into like, I'm a polished leader now. I have a lot of expertise and experience in a field I care a lot about. Right. I know what the journey is to becoming a world champion. So I've built these, what I, I call them superpowers. And the way I've been applying them that led me to burnout, it was, I was using these superpowers uh, in a way driven by anxiety. Instead, I can take a step back and say, you know what? Kid Newton, he had a lot of needs that weren't being met. So you went through a lot. You built yourself into the superhero you needed. You built up these skills. You built yourself into a stronger person. But you're aware of what's driving you, and you can choose something else. So if you decide to be your own hero, you have some amazing superpowers now. What do you want to do with them for the world? And so that's why that poster is there, to make sure I'm thinking about that. It's great. You know, you have the reminder and, you know, I love how part of that touches on imposter syndrome for, for one, which I know a lot of people, oh uh, gosh, you know, yes. contend with. We talk, <laughs> we talk about this concept also in, in a form of, uh, at least similarly to earned confidence. And, uh, and, and though I, I like how you're embracing the identity, sh even though you're having an identity shift, whether that's having to contend with imposter syndrome or anything, it's not absent having your former identity still being part of it. So, uh, I, I think that's some great introspection. All right. Well, that brings us to your third insight to live by. What do you have for us? So this is the last one. As I came back to work and you kind of come back or I came back with this new lens, having gone through this experience of burnout, knowing the stats of how many were burned out and then hearing other people's stories because they knew like, hey, you've been through this. I want to talk to you because I'm struggling too. I like to say, Everyone is just a human in a certain context. So when we get in the workplace, there's a lot of intensity. There's a lot of stuff that needs to get done. I can focus on the goals. I can focus on the process. I can focus on the desired outcome, but I need to think about this more holistically. Ultimately, the team is built up of humans. And if I'm looking at the machine and, and saying like, hey, we're not going in the direction that I think we need to, we're not getting the output I think we need to. I can flip it and say, let's go totally bottoms up and say, for the people who make up this team, you're a human. You need things in terms of your physical, mental, social, and spiritual health. And if you get those things, then you're going to be in a great place, not just to achieve our shared mission, but to take care of yourself and most importantly, be there for your loved ones. So I need to be able to like, shift altitudes very quickly where I, I can look top down and say, is this is a desired outcome. What's going on with the, the large organization, or I need to dive all the way down and say, what is this, this amazing human being in my organization? Are they getting what they as a human need? And if not, how do we address that? Yeah. And, uh, it is such a perfect way to wrap up, you know, from where we started, because we're talking about, delivering effective practices that actually address people's needs. Well, you have to know what people's needs are. <laughs> so there has to be a yeah. mechanism in, in place in the way that you're describing in order to even, you know, set the problem up to have a solution to address it. So um, just perfect. I mean, we, we, we jammed a lot of content uh, and, and practical insight uh, in all of that. Any final thoughts, Newton, or you feel like we've kind of hit it and we're, we're right there? 
You good? I, I just want to remind everyone that, uh, again, 50% of us are burned out, but it is heavily stigmatized. So, so many are hiding it. Uh, as I've shared my story, the people who open up, they are junior to me in the organization. They're my peers. They're above me. They're inside and outside of Google. So just try to carry that in your heart as you navigate the world, because you're not going to see the suffering, but it's there. Yeah, I, I, I'm so glad that uh, you, I gave you the last word on on that one. I do have to ask you, Newton, is there a place in particular where, do you have a website or someplace people can find you? I know you're very Googleable. <laughs> I tried. I failed. You, you'll, there's a lot to find you on Google, uh, more about you. Uh, any place you'd want people to go and find out more? Uh, two, two places. Sure. One is LinkedIn. Okay. So um, you can find me, just search Newton Chang, and that's Chang with an E, not an A. Yep. We'll have it and in the show notes. Other place, yep. Awesome. And then the other place is Instagram. And so Instagram is much more about my powerlifting journey. And so that's very, I pretty much use it as a training log, but I type a lot of philosophical thoughts as I go so that I'm kind of keeping a, a diary of how I refine my mindset towards competition over time. Awesome. Well, I look forward to tuning into that myself. Newton, once again, thank you so much for taking time out. I know you've got a lot going on to share all the insights you have and to benefit uh, those we serve together. So thank you. Thank you, Matt. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Insights to Live By. Please feel welcome to connect with me on LinkedIn and Instagram and make the most of our free resources to improve your life for good at mattzinman.com. Wishing you and yours an enriching day, and we'll see you next time.